from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Hello, it's great to have you here in the house of the Badass Counseling Show podcast. Everyone tuning in around the world from Edmonton to Alabama, from Charlotte, North Carolina, all the way over to Dublin. We have multiple Dublin folk in the house tonight and all over. It's great to have you here. I'm joined in studio by KC over in the booth and Rob the Rocket sitting next to me. Rob, yo, yo. what do you have to say today? Business is good here, Sven. You know, you're almost as popular as Taylor Swift, but the price of admission to the podcast is a little lower than the tickets to her concerts. Yes, yes, just, yes. Just a little. And I've heard it said that she's a better singer than me. I don't know if I fully buy that. I, but. I can't believe that. You're you're excellent. <laughs> All right. So you guys know why we're here. We're here to get into questions and get down and dirty and dive into it. And so we're going to just go ahead and start it right off. Is it healthy to cut a parent out of my life if they abused me my whole childhood? Well, the mere fact that you're asking that question says that in part you want to to protect yourself. You wouldn't even be asking the question if you didn't want to, unless someone was pressuring you to cut your parents off. But you're saying, is it healthy to cut a parent out of your life if they abuse me my whole life? Well, that's contingent upon a couple of things. Uh, but most importantly, are they still abusing you? Or more importantly, have they atoned for the abuse that they caused? And, and have they expressed true contrition, a heaviness of heart, and not just saying, oh, I'm sorry I did it, now let's move on. Have they actually come to you and owned that shit and really felt the gravity of it and allowed you to get your pain out and flush it out to them. Because if they haven't done that, then they're trying to ignore it. And why would you want to be in a relationship with someone who has abused you and ignores the fact that they abuse you, doesn't own it? No. So when you ask the question, is it healthy to cut a parent out of your life if they abuse me my, my whole childhood? Sure, it's healthy. Especially if they're still doing it now or doing anything other than owning and atoning for it. Um, yeah, you have to maintain your boundaries, and and if they are still being hurtful in any way, you absolutely have to get them out of your life. But more importantly, even than getting them out of your life, is you have to be going in and doing the dirty work of cleaning out all that crud from your past, because that shit will haunt you, even if the actual physical people are out of your life. Those messages that you were taught about yourself are still in you. That's the work of getting all that shit out of you. All right, next question. Oh, here's a good one from over here on Facebook. What the fuck actually does self-care mean? Or loving yourself to heal mean? Uh, bubble baths ain't it. I'm happy to do that work, but I'm lost as to what that means. Please help. We all like bubble baths. Although, you know what? Sometimes I don't like bubbles in my bath. And I like, I'm a bathtub guy more than a shower guy. I love a hot bath, just sliding in. It's like sliding into a really hot, hot tub. I love it. I, the bubbles, it's just weird. I, I don't, I, I, no, I don't need the bubbles. But that's not really your point, is it here, Deb? You asked the question, what the fuck does self-care actually mean or loving yourself to heal mean? Self-care is, it's, the way I explain it is this. My metaphor is this, that basically your authentic self, your happiest self, your truest self, your authentic self, who you were born to be is down deep inside of you. It doesn't go anywhere. You don't have to go outside and discover who you are. Who you are is inside of you. But what happens, the more pain that we experience in life is that that pain 
and the harsh words and the messages that we're taught about ourselves get packed on top of our authentic self. And so eventually those voices of the people around us, people who claim to love us, who did damage or who taught us shitty things about ourselves, told us shitty things about ourselves, lies that were never true to begin with, those voices become bigger than our own voice inside of us. And we begin to hear their voices and their messages. You're not good enough. You're unlovable. You're unwantable. You're not important. You don't matter. Things like that. And they drown out our own voice, our own sense of self. So when you ask the question, what does self-care mean? Self-care or what I just call healing means getting all those other voices out of you so that you can live from your own inner voice, your own sense of self-love, that you just like who the fuck you are. And if, if you're, if you, but if you got all those other voices in you, all those other messages in you, you're trying to love yourself. It's like you're trying to force it. It's like you got one foot on the accelerator, the gas pedal, and one foot on the brake. Oh, I love myself. I love myself. I love myself. But then the fucking brake gets hit of all those other voices inside of there. Whereas if you get those voices out, we just, a chi- it's like a child. A child naturally loves themselves and loves life and life is good until they are corrupted by all the voices telling them so no the world is scary or you're no good or you're not good enough or you're too much this or not enough that and so what it means what self-care actually means is going in and getting out all the bullshit messages you were taught about yourself well how do you do that and you know i could it's a bit more of an explanation but i made it into a book there's a hole in my love cup you can get it at the website badasscounseling.com all right next question where do you start by getting rid of those bad things? Where do you start? Well, I open, <laughs> in my book, uh, there's a hole in my love cup. I open chapter one and I explain sort of what I'm explaining here and a few other things. And then I have journaling exercises um, at the end of many of the chapters. And what I ask, the, you know, it, the opening question that I ask is, what's the single most traumatic event to your life? And some people are like, I don't even know where to start on that. You know, either I can't think of anything or there are so many, where do I start? So then I say, well, just start with something small. Start with something from your past, even if it's just yesterday, even if it's just last week, start with something that you have, where you have a memory, this is the memory, and you have an emotional charge attached to that memory. It's like your your hand, your fist is the memory, and then each of your fingers has like this emotional charge attached to it. That's the pain, that's the fears, that's the bullshit messages you were taught about yourself. And once we identify one memory that has an emotional charge, we begin to write about it. Well, how does it feel? Why does it feel that way? What pisses me off the most? Well, what really happened? Well, why did that happen? Well, why am I feeling this way? And flushing, and that's the flushing, actually thinking about it and getting it out by writing it out. Now, in my book, I teach other tools that are uh, can be added to that that accelerate the process, but it's... It's getting it out, and this is what therapy is. You're talking about things, but most therapy is what, 50 minutes long? How much do you really think you can go, in your, go into your past when you just wanna talk about what happened this week that pissed me off, you know, my boss yelling at me or whatever? But this really deep shit, you go into it, and so it's beginning to look at any, the simplest way to do it, just make a list of every single memory you have that has any sort of emotional charge attached to it. And you're like, wow, the list could go on forever. Exactly. So at least do the big ones. But- I committed in my own life. I committed, it's like, fuck, I want to clean out my love cup of all the crud. And so I went through and I just made a list of every single memory. Hell, now, 15 years later, I still think of memories. 
that I had completely forgotten about. Memories that have some sort of emotional charge. And so then I'll journal on that or I'll use some of the other tools. But it means flushing out this pain. And you start by starting with the one that comes to mind. Again, maybe it's yesterday when that person cut you off in the grocery store, store parking lot or when your boss gave you a poor performance review you know, three months ago or whatever it might be, anything, or the day your barbecue blew up or whatever it might be and you just were pissed off because they sold you a faulty product, whatever it might be, and begin there and more and more will come up and you need to flush out more and more of that. Okay, next question. I've been doing the journaling and I'm so exhausted from the emotion. Exactly, exactly. You'll know you're down in the deep stuff when you feel tired. <laughs> I'll be in session with someone. And as you guys probably know, my opening sessions with any client are between four and six hours. I usually push for the six because we can cover so much more ground. But then follow-up sessions are always a minimum of two hours and a maximum of four hours. And I can always tell when I'm down in the deep stuff with someone where I've really gotten down there because they begin to have some sort of physical reaction. And one of those physical reactions is yawning. And they'll start to feel tired. Sven, I really want to, you know, maybe we should cut this session short. It's like, no, we're in it now. And I know we're in it because you're starting to feel it. You're feeling the weight of it. And so when you say, Faith, I've been dealing with the journaling and I'm so exhausted from the emotion. Yeah. So then write about the exhaustion. I'm feeling so exhausted. And this is so, such hard work. Flush that out too. But see, this is it. And this is why so many people don't want to stir this shit up and go to counseling or do the work of the journaling or some of the ex other exercises I talk about in the book. Why? Because it stirs this shit up. Oh, isn't it easier to just keep, keep it down? Well, obviously it isn't easier. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gone to counseling in the first place. You wouldn't have started journaling in the first place. You're doing this shit because your life is weighing you the fuck down. And the price of it no longer weighing you down is you stirring this shit up and flushing it out. This is the price. This is why it's badass counseling. This is why this is badass work because you have to have the courage to continue to wade into it day in and day out, trusting that the more I do this shit, the lighter I'm gonna become. The, 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 the fresher, the freer, the more alive, the more purpose-driven I'm going to become. All right, next question. What are your thoughts on hypnosis for healing along with journaling? I'm actually a fan of hypnosis. I was dabbling in self-hypnosis back in my early 20s and I believe it can be very powerful in certain ways for unearthing uh, things that have been stuffed down, uh, for putting in new patterns, uh, establishing new mental patterns, breaking free of some old patterns, uh, but it still requires the work of identifying the stuff and flushing it out. But yes, using hypnosis in addition to, in conjunction with these other tools, I'm, I'm a big fan. All right, Brennan asks, where do I get more information on therapy sessions? Go to badasscounseling.com badasscounseling.com. All right. Um, this person asks, I wish I would have activated your lessons sooner. I get that a lot. <clears throat> In fact, we just taped a, an episode of the counseling show earlier uh, today. And uh, the particular person we were talking with said, gosh, I wish I would have realized this stuff sooner. I hear that a lot when people have the breakthroughs and when they begin to become free and more alive, they get upset with themselves or mad at life or mad at God or mad at themselves or whatever. Why didn't I do this work when I was 20 or when I was 30? Why didn't I do it back then? And the truth is you're so stuck in all the crud you were taught about yourself from childhood, you had no way of seeing that you needed this, that the pain had to get so bad that you began to see clearly that there was a problem and that you were willing to overcome the fears of going into it. And you guys have heard me say it before, but you know it's easy to look back when you're 50 or when you're 60 or 70 and say, and when you've finally done the healing work and say, why didn't I do this when I was 25? 
And it's easy to do that. And that's all right. And you can uh, bemoan that and, and lament that and cry it out a bit. But in the end, it's like that old line from the movie, The Natural, when where Glenn Close says to, the Glenn Close character says to the character played by Robert Redford, we are each given two lives. The life we learn from and then the life we live. And so if you're 50, if you're 60, if you're 70, whatever, if you're 40, if you're 25 and you're doing it and you wish you would have done it sooner, but you did it now and you've got life ahead and you can build a life ahead because there's so many people your age, whatever your age is, who are still stuck in it. And you have the opportunity now, you are free, you are alive, you have a sense of clarity of self and a love of self. Just savor it and make the best of it. All right, next question. I'm an extreme giver and have extreme takers. I'm dealing with family with mental illness that I want to be able to support and take care of myself as well. I'm reading the book and I'm having trouble opening up. I suck at boundaries, uh, perhaps. So I'm an extreme giver and I have extreme takers. Dealing with family with mental illness that I want to be able to support and take care of myself as well. Reading the book, I'm having trouble opening up. I suck at boundaries, perhaps. Well, you may suck at boundaries. I mean, if you if you uh, are an extreme giver, then yes, you have struggled with boundaries to begin with. And especially if you got extreme takers around you, they're happy to take and take and take. And But this springs from your own sense of worth, your own lack of sense of worth, your own uh, messages that you are taught about yourself, that you're not worthy, that your feelings, your wants, your needs don't matter. And the voices, and there are, those voices are packed on top of your authentic feelings and your authentic self, and those have to be taken out of you. And then the boundaries become much more effortless because you believe in yourself, right? But those voices are inside of you, and those have to come out. And yeah, you're gonna begin to create some boundaries in your uh, life, your exterior life around you as well. But what the change has to come from within first. All right, next question. I have one here from... Uh YouTube, Sven, if you'd like to consider it. Yeah. How do you know when you're done letting it all out on a specific trauma? Sometimes I feel done, but then question myself that what if it's not all, and then I close that chapter, not completed? What I would say in that case is, what if I close the, the chapter on that and it's not completed? So that's an, that's an expression of fear. Fear that I'm closing it uh, prematurely. So how do I know when I'm done? What I say is just assume they're all open. Assume it's never closed, okay? And that if it's done, it'll fade away. You don't have to actually close anything per se. You just keep flushing on something until you're not feeling any feelings with regard to that. And then, you know what? I've had stuff come up, for instance, on my father. I adore my father and so forth, but he made mistakes as with every parent. And I spent a good amount of time, uh, several weeks in a right in a row back uh, probably 15 years ago when I was in my uh, early forties flushing on, on dad stuff. And, you know, I had done dad stuff, mom stuff all the way along, but, and I, it was really intense couple of weeks. And I used a couple of other tools that I talk about in the book. And I was really going after the dad stuff. And then I didn't have the, the need or the desire. I wasn't feeling the dad stuff. Um, and so I just sort of let it go. And then, oh, was it a year later, year and a half later, I had some more uh, dad stuff come up that I had either forgotten about or it just wasn't fully resolved. And so I went back in. So there's no need to feel like uh, something, okay, it's closed now. It doesn't matter. If you've done the work, it'll just fade away. It'll cease to be an issue for you. So the question is, well, what's an issue for me now? What am I feeling now? And address that. 
And if you're not feeling something, there you go. There's no emotional charge attached to you or attached to that memory anymore. So just keep doing the releasing work, doing the flushing work until there's no more, no longer a charge attached to it. And trust and give yourself room, give yourself permission. If there are more feelings that come up later, okay, I'll deal with those then. That's okay. I mean, I'll be really honest with you. I mean, when it comes to love alone, I've been married twice. I've had a few uh, long-term relationships in my life. Two of them marriage and one or two others that were not. You know, I'm in my mid-50s, so I've had a few. And uh, there'll be times when feelings of love will come up towards an ex that, oh, shit, I didn't remember this. Or feelings of anger over something. And when I thought that that was more or less done, well, it was more or less done, but there was still a little bit left. And that's okay. That's okay. So then you just process it when it comes back up. All right. How can I reduce how much I hurt my kids while I work on myself? I'm really short with them. Okay, first of all, I admire your honesty. I think that's fantastic. To have a parent who recognizes that they're hurting their kid uh, is just, it's such a blessing. Hurting the kid is not the blessing. The fact that you're seeing it and you're wanting to reduce it is fantastic. I love it, um, especially from a guy. So Jason, uh, this is this is great. Um, I'm really short with them. You're short with them because you've got so much pain inside of you. And you got a lot of fucking anger inside of you. And you need to be going hot and heavy with your journaling, man. And writing letters to the people you're really angry at. Um, so how can I reduce how much I hurt my kids while I work on myself? Um, well, I'll give you the example of this. Maybe you guys have heard me say this before. Back when I used to wait tables, and I waited tables off and on for 15 years while going through college and graduate school and shit like that. And, you know, if you got five tables going, or if I've got 10 tables going, uh, you know, I've got so many things going on in my head, right? It requires immense amount of mental focus, and it's very easy to move at a very high pace. But I know when I'm out to dinner, if the waiter comes up to the table and I feel like they're moving at a very high pace, I feel like they're rushing my dinner experience. So they're fucking ruining it. And I was cognizant of that as a waiter. So I would imagine myself being an airplane coming in for a landing. And so the last two steps before I approached any table I would force myself to physically slow down. And I would physically, sometimes I'd take a deep breath as well while I'm approaching the table and I would force myself to physically talk slower. In other words, I came in for a landing so that I could be present to them. So you're asking, Jason, you're asking, you know, I'm really short with my kids. How can I reduce how much I hurt my kids? Whatever you need to do to slow the fuck down. When you, if you need to take an extra 15 minutes on your way, on your way home from work to just get out, breathe, you know, walk, go for a 10 minute walk, you know, a, you know, a mile away from your house and just breathe, whatever you need to do to get some of the stress out or to stop and take 15 minutes to journal that hate letter to your boss from today when he was being a fucking dick or whatever it is. Uh, you do that so that when you are present, you are present and you're breathing. So there's there's journaling, there's breathing exercises, there's meditation, there, there's getting more sleep at night. Those are all the everyday things that you can be doing, making sure you're eating well, making sure you're getting enough exercise to blow out your steam. But in the end, the source of all this hurt towards your kids and you being short with them is all the shit that's going on inside of you, which you make mention of. You said, how can I reduce how much I hurt my kids while I work on myself? So you can do these things like breathing, coming in for a landing, taking time alone, you know, getting your exercise. You can do all those things. But if you really want to reduce how much you hurt your kids, work harder on working on yourself. Make that your motherfucking mission. 
every day, starting getting up a half hour earlier and maybe cutting your workout. If you work out in the mornings, cut your workout by 30 minutes and devote that 30 minutes to going into a quiet room in the house when everybody's asleep. Or maybe you do it in your car after your workout, or maybe you do it at night, but committing every single day to taking time to be alone, to meditate, to journal, to write letters, to you know work on my book. Um, one of the commercials that we have for the book is a gentleman, he, sales manager, and talks about reading my book and how every day he'd read it on his commute home from work, and then he'd stay in the driveway listening to the end of the chapter and doing the journaling exercises in his car. All right, but it's committing to the stuff that's inside of you, Jason, because that's what's causing you to take it out on your kids. The more you reduce that, the faster you reduce that, the more you'll just begin to calm down inside and you'll be such a better father. All right, much more to come right after this short break. My wife pushed me to watch this guy's TikTok videos. So I finally caved in and holy crap, blew me away. I started watching more and every time he opens his mouth, I get blown away in a whole new way. So I finally bought his book, there's a hole in my love cup. To say I got an ass kicking is an understatement. Much needed. It was like having my own personal tough therapist who just gets it. So go do yourself a favor. Get There's a Hole in My Love Cup. It's powerful stuff. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. And we are back with a lightning round. We're hitting it hot and heavy today. Uh, diving right back in. How do you continue to seek help from a system that has failed you multiple times? Clearly, you're disappointed and hurt and hurting from your own stuff, not only being disappointed with the system and that whatever system that might be, the healthcare system, maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe you're a veteran and you feel like the... Uh, uh, veterans' uh, help and psychological help has disappointed you, whatever the system might be. Maybe it's your faith organization that you've been seeking help from. You ask the question, how do you continue to seek help from a system that has failed you multiple times? Well, on one hand, you have the option of no longer seeking help from that system that has failed you multiple times and find other systems, find other places uh, that can help you. Or you you know, flush out, get out of you, all the anger and the sadness and the uh, dysfunction uh, that you're feeling inside and go back in and be vulnerable to being helped again. Or a third option is you start healing yourself. The reason I create all these tools, 800 plus free videos on Facebook and TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and so forth is to help people do it themselves. You can heal yourself. It took me 12 years to come out of a suicidal depression because I, all I did, there was... I read books. I read a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of books and did a lot of journaling and learned new tools and so on and so forth. But I didn't have somebody holding my hand. So I've created all of these tools and this free podcast and I wrote my book. There's a hole in my love cup and the do-it-yourself videos on the website. All of this so that you can do it yourself. There is a mental health. There is a soul health. There is a spiritual counseling shortage. All of those shortage in the US, in Canada, in a lot of countries. So dive in. There are great tools out there. And my shit, I try to provide as much as you can. Just start doing it on your own, Haley. Start doing more on your own. And again, that's what my shit is for, to hold your hand through it because you can do it. But if you want to dive back into the system that has failed you, you got to get your own anger, frustration, sadness, fear, reticence, uh, distrust out of you. Otherwise, you won't open up if you do go back in. All right. 
Next question. I have an update. I'm not as depressed. I'm optimistic. The gym has been helping a bit. That's good. And so presumably the counseling and the book reading and so forth has helped. And the gym is helping too. One of the things that uh, some of you have heard me say before, and that is I recommend uh, mixing your disciplines. So I often do. I Today was one of my gym days. I only work out uh, once a week, sometimes twice a week if I have to split it. And I do heavy journaling while I'm doing heavy lifting. In between sets, I'll journal. Why? Because then I can conjure up any anger I have, any rage, any sadness. I bring it all up and I can do the physical release in the lifting and I can be flushing it out and giving it words. So start to gel. You know, I we had uh, someone on the show who said that uh, she uh, goes for a walk with her girlfriend every day, her very dear friend, next door neighbor, something like that. And they turn on their camera on their phone and they video themselves talking about all their shit and their problems and, you know, in their relationships and their job and their career and fears and family and all this shit. And then they go back and they watch it. So it's its own form of journaling. They're flushing it out, but they're not just saying it. Just saying the shit isn't enough. It's staying in it. And, then, and by them going back and watching the video and hearing it, it forces them to stay in it and address it and discuss it and think about it even more. And that's very, very healing. All right. Okay, this is a very long question. I'm going to sort of give you the highlights. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast and in your book, uh, you've helped a lot already. I'm recovering from an emotionally abusive 25-year marriage, resulted in cheating, and then jumped into another one that resulted in cheating uh, for the entire two years. Not just cheating, but he had full-in relationship with both of us. I love understanding the why, but I can't get over it. I'm so sad and beaten down. I surround myself with people who I love and I know love me, friends, family. I love my job and it brings me joy. But when I sit alone, the pain is tremendous. I found out that the new relationship had another last December. It's been so long and I can't get past it. I'm writing letters, journaling, and counseling. I'm just waiting for this pain to go away and the feeling of not being good enough, even though I know this is not true advice. Yeah, I mean, that pain, the fear, the anxiety, the longing, and that tremendous pain is, it's just a matter of continuing to flush it, but there's something down there that's stuck. If you've been doing the work, then there's something down even deeper that is stuck inside of you. And I'm willing to bet it's either pain or fear, but I'm even willing to bet it's fear. Um, and have you addressed that in your journaling? What is it you're most afraid of in this equation? Is it being alone? Is it getting cheated on again? Is it perhaps that you're choosing, somewhere in you, you're choosing to stay stuck in the pain? Because if you aren't stuck in the pain, that would mean moving forward and trusting again and the potential of getting hurt again. So in a way, you're choosing a lesser of two evils. You're choosing a lesser pain. The pain of, well, I can handle what I got in front of me, but I can't bear the thought of getting it out of me and then being vulnerable again and potentially getting hurt. And what you really need to be addressing as well in your own self-work is, what did I miss in that second relationship? When, what were the signs? What are the red flags that I'm missing? Because twice you've been in relationships and twice it resulted in cheating. What are the signs that I'm missing? And, and am I honoring my boundaries in the beginning of relationship? And this, you guys, you gotta understand, that the bad things that a relationship become always start small. Maybe it starts in the beginning of a relationship. Maybe it starts two years in. Maybe it happens right after the wedding. Maybe it's, you know, they mirror you. They mirror you. They mirror you. But yes, they mirror you and they make it seem like they're wonderful. But at some point, they break the mirroring. At some point, they deviate from it. At some point, they're extreme taking what some people call narcissism. They're being an extreme taker, they're being rude or they're being mean. They break from it. I mean, if they're just always mirroring you and being nice, then there's no problem in the relationship. 
If that continues for 20 years, great. You got two people who are being nice to each other. No, at some point they break from that and begin to be mean, begin to be rude, begin to take you for granted, begin to uh, mistreat you. And at that point that it starts, you have to be vigilant and catch it then. If you are a young person dating or getting in a relationship, catch it early. Fucking hell, the number of hundreds of thousands of my followers, perhaps even of the millions that follow, you know, I've got what, 2.1 million on TikTok, of the millions, you don't even know, young people, you don't even know how many of my followers are over 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 who say, catch it early. I wish I would have caught it early. I wish I would have stopped it when it was early, but I thought it would go away. Or I thought, oh, I just love them and I just want to keep her or blah, 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 blah. And you let it go. Don't let it go. Small things become big things. Rob, you got a knowing look on your face, a wan look. What do you want to say, Rob? I don't really want to say anything, but I, I do have to admit that I experienced this and I was actually told you're making a horrible mistake. Don't do it. I was told this early on, but I did it anyway. Lived to tell the tale, but uh, it took a chunk out of my life, I'm sorry to say. Yep, I got those same words said to me. You guys listen to Sven, he knows. Or listen to Rob or listen to, you know, it's hard to slow down when we're young. And it was hard for me to slow down. I was 22 when I met the woman who had become my first marriage. We were so in love and people said, you know, what's the hurry? And it's like, ah, oh, fuck it. We'll be fine. Fuck it. Fuck it. Come on. Fuck it. And I did, and I hated people telling me what to do. I was the youngest of six kids. The thing I've hated, one of the things I've hated most in life is people telling me what to do. Right? And especially when we're young. No, we're going to do it our own selves. Fine. Do it yourself. That's fine. I'm not saying you, you can't get into a relationship when you're young or anything like that. I'm just saying when it hurts, don't let it get bigger. Nip it in the bud. Stand up for yourself. Say, no, you're not allowed to treat me that way. Don't overlook it. Don't think, oh, I just so need somebody. I'll never meet anybody this good. No, you will. You'll meet better. Don't fear being alone. It's better to be alone than to begin to allow those little things that hurt to get a little bit bigger, a little bit more frequent, and last a little longer. All right, next question. All right, well, then in response, this person says they don't give signs until it's too late. No, that's not true. It's not true. They don't give signs until it's too late. No, when they give the signs, whenever it is, it's not too late. That's when you start. You maintain your boundaries when the first sign appears, when the second sign appears. Rob? You have to be able to recognize the signs. That's the rub. It is, and willingness to stand up for yourself and, and shut those down. We were just uh, in session. We taped a session with a client tonight who said she saw things early but she decided I'm gonna be the one to smooth it over because I don't want conflict. And she admitted she feared the conflict getting too high and then he might leave me. So she saw the signs and she chose to be the one, the peacekeeper. And I'll just keep the peace, I'll just keep the peace. And now, you know, seven years in, they got a divorce. She had to divorce him, you know, rather than allow, you know, standing up there even in the conflict. So the notion that they don't give signs until it's too late just isn't true. The signs always come, but you have to nip it when it's small. Now, the, to Rob's point, that if you don't see the signs, sometimes if you've been conditioned, if you've grown up in a home where there was, uh, where you were bullied by an older sibling, okay, 
or by a parent, or you were hurt, or you were criticized, or your voice was never listened to, then that becomes the equation by which you judge further relationships. This is normalized. Oh, this is what love is. So when you meet someone later who bullies you or who criticizes you or who doesn't listen to your opinion or who treats you like your thoughts, your needs, wants, and feelings don't matter, it's not even gonna be a red flag because it's normal. You're already used to this. It's so familiar, right? And so why this is why doing the work when we're young is so critical and maybe even delaying the, you know, the first big relationship till you have a chance to breathe a bit and age a bit and do some of this work on your own past. So these young generations now that are doing a lot of this self-care, self-healing work when they're young, it's fucking fantastic. It increases the odds of improvement in their relationships if they're actually going in and doing the work of healing their past when they're young because they'll begin to see the red signs rather than normalizing that crappy stuff that they got from their childhood. Rob? Or choosing to ignore them. And you're not going to listen to your friends if you're in love or think you are. Right. It's possible that a mental health professional early on will say, this is a horrible mistake, and you could ignore that too. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I did. Right. Maybe I did. (laughs) Yeah, I did. (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and see, that's just it. You, you know, if I'm counseling a young person or any person who's in a new relationship, I mean, if you've been married for 20 years and now you're 40, you might as well be 20 again because you haven't dated before for 20 years. And so it when I'm counseling someone who's in a new relationship or considering getting into a new relationship, I don't necessarily tell them don't do it. I simply say, be aware. All you have to be aware of is when things don't feel good. That's it. If you can do nothing else in your life, be aware of when something doesn't feel good. Well, that means getting out all the pain and all the other voices saying, no, that doesn't hurt you. You know, when you're, when, when we're in sports, especially as a football player and a wrestler and shit, you know, you, you turn your ankle or you, you know, you get beat and bruised and whatever. And it's just like, toughen up, get back out on the field. So you learn to shut down some of that pain. Okay. Well, a lot of people are taught that emotionally growing up. And so they don't know what hurts. All right. So that's why we heal that past so that you can know when something hurts. And when something hurts, you have to be willing to stop that. You have to be willing to stand up to a person when it doesn't feel good. And for a lot of people, it's like, oh, that's such a simple definition. That's what it boils down to. Does it feel good or not? And if it doesn't, don't allow it because it will get bigger. It is a cancer that will metastasize. You have to catch it small. All right, next question. I got a question here from uh, YouTube. It's an adoption question that we sometimes encounter. This is well stated, I think. Uh, This person says, my dad was adopted and recently located his biological mother who was in her 80s. She has not spoken to him and doesn't want anything to do with him. He feels rejected. What can he do to start healing? Yeah, boy, that's, that's tough. Twice rejected, right? Once at birth and then once when dad is 60 or however old your dad is. Yeah, your dad would be wise to get with a therapist. And there are actually therapists that specialize in adoption and adoption issues or lost parent issues, refining, uh, reclaiming um, lost parents who put you up for divorce, uh, put you up for adoption, excuse me. But your dad should be in counseling or at the very least writing, at the very, very least, tell him, write a couple of letters to your mom that you don't send. Write her a letter and tell her how hurt you are, how sad you are, how much you miss her, how much you wish you could have a relationship with her. And my, I, my heart kind of hurts for your dad. I think we all kind of do. It's like, 
it's it's that's hard, man. It, what you don't understand when you're young is as you get older, those feelings, especially the family stuff, in a way it, it gets bigger. It's easy to let it get smaller, but in some ways you become more reflective when you're not working as much anymore and busy with life issues. You begin to reflect on life more. I was talking with my girlfriend just uh, yesterday, day before. We were sitting outside, enjoying the evening, and you know, thinking about our own families and people we miss within our own families who maybe who are still alive. We miss them because we don't have that relationship, or in wish we do. Um, and so, yeah, it's easy to it's easy to let that stuff slip away. Um, and, uh, what was the original question, Rob? That the dad who was, was oh, adopted yeah, just found his biological yeah. mother who's in it's her eighties. Yeah. It's hard as, as your dad is age, it's harder. Some of that stuff, when you allow yourself time to think about it really hits hard and your dad needs to be flushing it out and journaling, writing letters. He should be wise for him to get a therapist. But what you can do is just ask him, dad, what are you feeling right now? What's the hardest part, dad? And let him talk. Don't try to fix him. It may be uncomfortable for you. Allow your own discomfort and sit with him and be with him. What's the hardest part? That must be really hard, Dad. I'm so sorry. And just let him talk. And you don't have to fix him. You don't have to, if you want to, you can say, here's what I think I heard you say, Dad. And then just parrot back what you heard. And he'll feel heard and his feelings will feel validated. And if your dad is a 60-something-year-old man, he comes from a generation where the notion of having his feelings validated, as he clearly didn't by a mother who'd left, uh, having his feelings validated uh, is a new thing and it will feel good to him. But just listen, let him talk. One can only hope that from an early age, he was told that he was adopted and that he was loved. Mm, agreed. If he found out much later, this would make it much harder. All right. Why do I dare with a girl for a few weeks? I'm going to assume you mean date. Uh, T and R are right next to each other on the keyboard, right? Why do I date with a girl for a few weeks, sometimes months, find out one annoying thing and end things? On one hand, I, I would say to you, well, why do you do it? Um, but if I were to speculate, you potentially, A, harbor the illusion that someone has to be absolutely perfect in order for you to be able to have a relationship with them. B, you fear something. A, you guys have heard me say it before, if you're ever trying to figure out why someone's doing something that doesn't make sense, always ask yourself the question, what's the primary fear driving the behavior? Speculate the answers and go with the biggest, hairiest, scariest one. But there is some fear driving your behavior, Andrew. Um, and, and so you're running away. And I'm willing to bet, honestly, that what the real fear is, is you're afraid to talk about it. You're afraid to say, that hurts my feelings. You're afraid to say, I'm mad. You're afraid to say, you know, Please don't do that. You're afraid to stand up for yourself. You're afraid of the conflict and the discomfort. You're afraid of that. And so you run away rather than have the hard conversation. But I'm telling you, Andrew, and, I, and I'm not dogging you for that, Andrew. I'm not dogging you for running away. I used to be the same way. So I totally get it. There are times when I'm still get uncomfortable having that hard conversation of saying to someone, you know, honestly, that hurts my feelings. Or you know what? I really, I got to ask you to not say that to me. It's just, it's rude, it hurts, it feels crappy because I still want to interact with you, but I just don't want to allow that. That's an uncomfortable conversation. I don't give a shit who you're talking to. That's an uncomfortable conversation. My bet, Andrew, is you, uh, it makes you uncomfortable standing up for yourself and saying, hey, that, I find that annoying or please don't do that. And so rather than having those hard conversations, you run away. 
I'm not dogging you. But dude, you're going to be running away from every single relationship for the rest of your fucking life if you can't talk about the stuff that's uncomfortable. What it means to have an adult relationship is where I speak my truth. See, you're being dishonest right now. You're not speaking your truth. Instead, you're walking away. But to be really honest and to have a rich and fulfilling relationship is when two people feel comfortable talking about what's really going on inside of them and the other person stays and listens and honors it and says, you know what, you're right. You got a really good point. Or says, well, I don't fully agree with you, but I want to listen, say more. All right, now we got a real relationship. Now, now we're cooking with gas. All right, one more question. How do I stop being vigilant all the time? It's making me tired. Um, you go inside and, and begin to find what the, your fears are. Vigilance is fear. Vigilance is fear of pain. The enemy invading, right? Somebody attacking the gate, so to speak. That's what vigilance is. And it's a fear. It's a fear of pain. And so you're always living in heightened alert, right? The chemicals in the brain, brain's always fucking firing because you're so afraid. And so you've got to go in and identify and begin to get out of you. Identify what is it I'm really afraid of? What are my top 10 fears that make me be so vigilant? I'm afraid of getting hurt. I'm afraid of uh, opening up and someone taking advantage of me again. I'm afraid of losing all my money. I'm afraid of getting fired. All these fears and flushing it out more and more and more. And the more you flush out your fears, the less they hold you by the short and curlies. All right. But it's fear that is tiring. It's just tiring to live in that heightened state but it's always fear. And this is why I talk about the three things that are undermining your happiness in life are pain, fear, and the bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself. And again, that's what I wrote the book for. Rob, you wanna go ahead and uh, any final thoughts here as we end this episode of the lightning round? Nope. Good questions as always, looking forward to more. And to all of you tuning in around the world, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Badass Counseling Show. On behalf of Rob the Rocket, KC in the booth, and Carly the Studio Cat, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.